What's up, Renaissance? Good morning. My name is Aswan. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's been a hard week. I'm going to just say it. It's been a hard week as a basketball fan. I know some of you chuckle. But it really has uh, the tragic news of Kobe Bryant's helicopter going down and his daughter uh, and the seven other people that lost their lives. Uh, a whole family, a couple, and their daughter were, were part of that. Just sad, sad news, am I right? And I'm, I'm hurt on many different levels. I'm, I'm hurt as a basketball fan, of course, but I'm hurt as a dad, right? As a dad, this is like, it's a blow. As a father, man, this is... It's a blow. And just as a, as a person, I mean, this was hard. This news was tragic and it was hard. But as I, were, as I was reading these stories, and again, some of you might be saying, listen, you didn't know them. Like my daughter was like, yo, people need to just stop. Okay? <laughs> Y'all don't know Kobe. And yo, that's true, but he lived 20 years of his life so publicly it feels like we do. You know what I'm saying? So give some people a little, little bit of grace. Uh, it just feels that way. But, it's, but it's, it's hard. But as I was reading the stories and getting to know more about uh, Kobe and hearing more about it, I heard uh, uh, maybe every journalist and even some of the friends that made quotes publicly said that in the last three years of Kobe's life, they felt like he was the most happiest, that he was... He, kind of went, there was this change that they noticed in his life. He went from this hard-nosed, tough, take-no-nonsense, semi-arrogant competitor at a very high level. Yeah, we can say he was a little bit arrogant. I think he would say that. But he was committed to his profession at a high level. Uh, and he went from that to this kind of hashtag girl dad. And people were just talking, to, they noticed that change in his life. And I would imagine some of the tragedy probably is if we would have seen that the, the last three years extended and have more time, maybe he would have been more known for that than he was as a superstar athlete. But that's part of the tragedy. But that change was so evident and so real that everybody talked about it. I think about my life. And um, I played basketball. Basketball is my life, was my life at a time. And I gave everything I could to the game. And, and probably not at the highest level. I didn't have Mamba mentality. You know what I'm saying? Every time. I did cheat a little bit on my suicides. You know? Um, but, I, but I accomplished more than I, than I, I think I could have. I'm, I'm an undersized guy. And I, I got paid to play the game of basketball. That's an accomplishment. That's successful. But if you look at my life now, 90% uh, of my relationships then were connected to the game of basketball in some shape, form, or fashion. But if you look at my life right now, 90 to 95% of my relationships are connected through my work as a minister. Yeah, amen to that. The latter shall be greater. You know what I'm saying? Um, but that's a real change. If you look at my life, that is a real, that's a real change that has happened. 
Um, yo, here's what I know, fam. Change is the only constant in life. And I was talking to someone yesterday, yesterday, and I was like, when I say that, what do you think about it? They're like, it's one of those, child, that's for real. <laughs> Change is the only constant in life. And change is real. It happens. Uh, and, and a lot of times we're not in, oftentimes we're not in control of the change. Have, have you ever felt like you just got your feet up under you and then bam, another change? I think about, you know, those of you know, I, I work, I'm the regional director for Young Life here in, in Manhattan. And yes, it always gets me. I say, it, I say it a lot at Renaissance. This is my church. And then when someone says, woo, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> but I think about our organization. And under, over the last three to five years, there's been so much change. So much so that I was at a senior leadership meeting. And we were telling the, the senior leaders, like, hey, listen, could we chill out on the change? Could we just slow it down a little bit? It's so hard to mitigate change. It's so hard to navigate life in change. But change, nevertheless, change is the only constant in life. It is going to happen. But I think there's two kinds of changes, or there's two types of change. Maybe that's a better way to say it. There's this cosmetic change. And when I say cosmetic change, I mean like, um, you know, you go to the doctor. Doctor says, hey you know, maybe you should chill out on the burgers. And you're like, all right, let me chill before things escalate, but let me not eat so many burgers. Okay, cool. Or you, you, in your home, you're like, you know what? I'm going to paint. I'm going to put a picture up. That's cosmetic change. Does that make sense? But then I think there's transformation. When something becomes new. See, like transformation is, I, I'm, I'm kind of judgmental. I'm a be, I, when I think about me, I'm kind of judgmental. You know what? I'm going to change being judgmental. So when someone says something, instead of me let, allowing my thoughts to go being judgmental, I'm going to hold on to those and not do that. And over time, I'm going to transform into a person that's no longer so judgmental. Or I'm going to use the house analogy. You go into a, a space and you say, you know what? I'm breaking down this wall because I'm going to make this whole space new. There's cosmetic change and then there's transformation. But if we were to be honest, <laughs> um, I don't like change. And I, maybe you're like me. Maybe someone in here is like me. We don't like change. I read some articles that said there is a propensity in human nature to resist change. And think about it. Like companies spend thousands, millions of dollars to figure out how to roll out change. Why? Because people inherently reject things when there's change. When they closed the, the, the stop, uh, the 125th Street station that's right near CVS when they were doing some remodeling, I was upset. <laughs> I don't like change because when I come from that direction, I want to go straight downstairs. <laughs> I don't want to cross the street. 
I was so upset. But if we were to be honest, we resist change in our life, don't we? Maybe you need to get up a little earlier to work out because it's, it's February. <laughs> January, you made some calls. It's February. Maybe you need to make some change to get up, and, and we resist it. And I think if we were to, if I, when I just think about the idea of change and how we as humans have the propensity to resist change, I think about it like this. Why is it so difficult to change? Really, because we think more of ourselves than we should. See, I'm going to give you, I'm going to jump on the sword here. I'm going to give you a real example. Um, um, as I... Early on in our marriage, Heather, um, we have a blended family, so I would come home and I would be the one, because in my house, chores had to happen. Shout out to Bridget Ann Morris. (laughs) You got to do your chores, right? So uh, as a father, uh, and now a new father in a blended family, I came in wanting chores to happen. Now, Heather had some chores in place, but you know... She was a little lax on how they got done. And I peeped that the girls would know how to navigate her. And so I would be the one who came home and said, nah, you kind of did it halfway, so you got to do it again. Kids hate that. I hated it as a kid, too. But Heather, would, she would tap me on the shoulder sometimes. She would say, Aswan, your tone, your tone is a little off. I don't like your tone when you share it with them. And I'm like, well, (laughs) that's because you haven't had a father in the house who's here to make sure chores actually get done the right way. So as the wonderful, wise wife that she is, she looked at me and chuckled. (laughs) And she let it go. Then she addresses it again, very smoothly. She says, hey, listen, maybe you could use a different tone. My answer was the same. I kind of pushed back again and said, why do you think it's me that's the problem? We need our children to actually do what we're telling them to do. Why would the problem be me? And then it hits me. I'm resisting the change because I think that I'm the one that's always right. I think more of myself than I actually should. Can I not be someone who has to adjust his tone when speaking to his children? Could I not be the person that needed to be, have a little more love and season of grace and, and kindness when I come home? Could I just think about the time frame in which I actually asked them to do it? Could I make these changes? At that point, I thought more of myself than I should, and therefore, I resisted this change. And yo, I think maybe some of you are like me. We resist change because we think more of ourselves than we should. Maybe the challenge is not everybody else. Maybe some of the challenge is us. The adage is true. It does take two to tango. I had to come to that reality, and I know that's why it's hard to change. 
But I want to go a step further because we talked about cosmetic change and transformation. And when I think about the resistance to change, some of us are sitting here saying and thinking, well, the issues that I have or the things that I'm wrestling with are so deep that I don't actually think change is possible. And man, I really think that's true for some of us, that we, are, we have some deep-rooted issues, things that maybe we are aware of or not aware of. Maybe they, they, they rise up when we're in certain situations, but there are some deep things in our life that actually, when we think about them, we're like, man, that ain't never going to change. Change is the only constant in life, yet we have the propensity to reject change. A lot of times because we think more of ourselves than we ought, than we should, and a lot of times because we might not even believe change is possible. Our scripture this morning is found in John, John 5. And what I love about our text this morning is this, that it gives us insight. It shows us, it gives us a snapshot, a Kodak moment of how the God of the universe desires to see and orchestrate deep transformational change in people. And I love this text because uh, I, I remember as when I first got into ministry and I would hear young people say, well, what is God like? How can we know about God? And I think the right answer is this, that the scripture says it best. It says, Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. So if you want to know the characteristics or the attributes of God, the character and nature of God, then you look at Jesus. And the Bible gives us these beautiful accounts of how Jesus, God, fully God, fully man, actually interacts with people and how he orchestrates deep transformational change in their life. See, the goal when God created us, the goal was for us to reflect him in this earthly realm. And, and that got all messed up by the sin condition. And God is so committed. He so desires to transform us, to look like him, so that when we go out, when people see us, they actually see a reflection of him. There's a God that's deeply committed to transformational Change And our text this morning uh, finds this man at the pool of Bethesda, and we get to see it. Because transformational change is, is, is real throughout the whole Bible. We see it in characters like, well, not characters, these are real people. We see it in people like Peter, where Peter was a fisherman, and Jesus says, come, follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Peter is known to, to have denied Jesus, but then he turns out to be one of the greatest disciples that we can even point to or look at for the Christian faith. 
We see Mary Magdalene. She, was, uh, she gets often misconstrued as this promiscuous woman, but the text really highlights that she had these, this, this demon possession, and she was kind of out of her mind, and she gets, Jesus gets a hold of her, and her whole life is transformed. And she now is actually quoted in the Bible. Her name is mentioned more than even the disciples. That's transformation. We see Paul, right, who was this dude filled with hate. Just hate on hate. Hate times hate. <laughs> Paul was trying to, you like that word? Paul was trying to murder people, murder the, the people who followed the way. We see that Jesus enters his life and he now writes three fourths of the New Testament. He's now a pillar of the Christian faith. Transformation is seen all throughout the Bible. So as we jump into our text, I want to make sure you know that we're talking about a God who desires deep transformational change in our life. I want to jump into the text this morning. It's found in John 5. I'm going to start at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Just to give us some context here, we don't know which one of the Jewish festivals was here, but we do know that John mentions it because uh, it's important. It references Jesus' time mark in his ministry. That's what we need to know there. Um, also, this kind of sheep gate idea, this just refers back to other points in the Bible in Nehemiah when they were rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They used to have this pool where sheep would come and they would kind of wash those sheep there. I just want to say that it actually is important when you read stuff in the Bible, uh, please don't just skip it. When you can't pronounce it, you're like, um, I know we do it. But, and all of these little details, they do matter. I don't have time to jump into all the details, but, but John is writing, writing it this way for a specific reason. It does matter. I want to make sure we, we know that. Um, this, this idea of the five covered colonnades, just think about uh, this row. If, if you take this stage and there were columns on each side of the state, uh, each side of me going down like this, um, this was covered and this pathway would have been the colonnades. And so John is really just setting up the scene for us. Verse three, here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And seemingly, you might read this and maybe you quickly gloss over the fact that, okay, Aswan, there's, um, you know, you're, you're saying that this, the blind lay here, the, the lame, the paralyzed. But as I said before, every detail is super important to the text. And I think uh, this description of, this, of these people it probably has a little more application to us than we might think at first glance. When we think about the blind, the Bible does a really good job of talking about blindness. Essentially, blindness is when you can't see. And uh, it, it is known, it's shown even in, uh, in Psalm, in Psalm 119, 18. 
It says this, the people of old, the people of God would pray this. The psalmist would pray this. It would say, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. There was this notion that uh, there were things about God or things happening that we need God to open our eyes to see. Jesus actually has a lot of confrontation with the religious leaders. Why? Because he accused them of being spiritually blind. They can't see that their hearts are so far from God. Yes, they might be talking about the law. Yes, they might be talking about the things to follow God, but their hearts are so far from God. And how do we know? Because Jesus steps on the scene as God incarnate, as God in the flesh, and they totally reject him. This idea of spiritual blindness actually becomes Jesus' most troubled thing. He, he says to people, that is actually really the most harmful thing, that you would be so blind that you can't see that you're in need of a God. And why does that apply to us? Well, man, listen, I know there have been times that I've been blinded. I, I don't see my own junk. I don't see the own, my, the, my, my own stuff in my life. And I look outside of me when the issues arise. We all, to some degree, have a level of spiritual blindness in our life. And because there's a God who desires deep transformational change, I don't think this text included the description of the people just so we could gloss over it. Maybe we are to ask, Lord, what have I been blind to? What in my life am I not paying attention to? Lord, am I just comparing me to her? Because I don't do what she does. I don't, I don't do the things that she does. Or are we comparing ourselves to the blameless lamb? And I know that sounds real Christianese. I'm just saying, are we comparing ourselves to a God that's perfect? Are we comparing ourselves to the right thing so then we could actually have a good diagnosis, a good assessment of really where we stand? Maybe God is asking some of us this morning, what are the blind spots in your life? What are the things you haven't been paying attention to or that you refuse to acknowledge? I don't know that God desires for us to remain blind. Then John tells us not only the blind are there, but the lame. And the lame here, the Bible is just talking about the injured. And as I was studying this, I, I, was, I was kind of amazed by, by this, and, you know, in, in, in slang terms, when we say somebody's a lame, like, that's a real thing. We, we say, peeps, yo, you're a lame. <laughs> like, that's not cool to say. I'm going to not say that anymore after studying this. But the, but the thought here, the, the connotation here is that there was somebody that was injured and has, had a physical injury. Uh, maybe they were dropped at birth or in an accident, and because there wasn't proper medical help, they grew with this deformity, or they had an issue uh, like a, a bone disease or some sort of issue that would have made walking or doing normal things not possible. Essentially, they were damaged. The lame in biblical times speaks about those who were damaged, <laughs> and again, I think there's some authentic application for us this morning 
because some of us are damaged. Man, if we took a picture of our hearts, there's probably some band-aids and some gauze wrappings around them. Yes? I remember, uh, like it was yesterday, but I remember back some years ago, um, I was in a, in a relationship with a young woman, and she cheated on me with my boy. Scandalous. <laughs> I know, I know. It was rough, rough times. And I was hurt, obviously, on many different levels, and I tried to act like I wasn't hurt. I tried to orchestrate a meeting between us. Like, let's just talk about this. That's so dumb. I don't know. Pray for me, guys. But out of that, how I know it affected me is out of that, and I don't believe this is true, but out of that, I started to develop this mindset that men and women can't really be friends. Because the way it was couched is that, yo, that's, we're just friends. And they were friends. I do believe that. And so I, I, I don't believe this. So hear me clearly. I'm not saying that. But the damage that that event caused in my life is that I walked around now thinking incorrectly, but that men and women can't be friends. And so I just, like, I would distance myself in relationships afterwards. I would question, like, yo, oh, is he your friend? <laughs> He's your friend, right? Let me see. I got some friend tests. But yo, the Bible is talking about those that were damaged. And if we were to be honest, I think we can identify with this. The Bible is relevant today. Some of us have those damaged perspectives or damaged views, or we have some things that have happened in our lives, some wounds and some scars that we now take into everything else that we do. Not only do we carry it into our relationship with God, but we carry it into our relationships with others. We carry it into our workplace. We carry it into everywhere we go. That's what the Bible is referring to when it talks about the lame. But how many of us know damaged goods are valuable in the kingdom of God? God loves to use the weak and the lowly to blow the minds of people who think they got it all together. Some of that is really, really good news. And then lastly, the paralyzed. Not only are the blind there, the lame, but the paralyzed. And the paralyzed here are talking about uh, people essentially who would want to do something but just can't. Have you ever been in a situation where you wanted to do something, you wanted to forgive, you just couldn't. You wanted to be bold and courageous. You wanted to jump out there and start that business. You wanted to jump out there and, and, and maybe engage in this relationship. It looks like it could be something good, but because of the wounds, now you're paralyzed. You won't even dare move. The Bible is talking about the paralyzed here, and I think John includes this so that we see ourselves in the story. Yes, when we read scripture, it's for us to learn and see the character and nature of God. And sometimes the Bible does so good at giving us a diagnosis of us so we can see how we are in relation to God. 
or how God relates to us. Verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. It's not that he lived on the colonnades for 38 years, but it, it would have been known or assumed that he was in this condition for 38 years. <laughs> and what I love is there's another translation that says Jesus learned of a man. Yo, peep, the Bible, I think, is meant to be experienced. I think out of all these people, Jesus might have been walking saying, yo, who's been here the longest? Yo, who is here? And they would be like, yo, I know he just got here, but yo, that dude right there? <laughs> Son, 38 joints at least. I mean, I don't know. That's, my, that's how I see it. Maybe it didn't happen like that, but Lord, help us. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And here we go. It's a good question. At first glance, I'm sure you're like me. When I read this, I'm like, yo, why would you ask him that? That is so insensitive. Jesus, does he want to get well? Bro, 38 years? Man. But I, I am learning to see the nature of God in Scripture. The gentleness, the mercy, the kindness of this question often gets overlooked. Because think about, and, and we'll see this in verse 7, but think about how this man must have felt. Being in this condition for 38 years, Jesus doesn't just assume to run up to him that he just wants to be well. Jesus graciously, kindly enters his world and asks him a question and shows him some dignity, gives him a chance to own it, says, do you want to get well? I love that our God is kind. He's a gentleman. And he doesn't try to force this chain of change upon him. He goes to kind of assess the situation. How bad is he? I see where he's at physically, but I know there's some deeper needs there. And another part of scripture where Jesus interacts with this man that has leprosy, the Bible says that Jesus actually reaches out his hand to touch him. Knowing that if he touched him, it was supposed to mean that he would now be unclean and unable to be a part of worship. But Jesus knew so much that this man had deeper needs than just physical needs. I mean, than, than, yeah, than just physically being touched. He knew he had some deep emotional needs connected to it. So he reaches out his hand and he touches him to show him that he still is valuable. Because leprosy had meant that he hadn't been touched in years. What a kind and merciful God we serve. And so we see Jesus stepping up saying, do you want to get well? And it wasn't to belittle him. I think it was to invite him, invite him into hope that maybe you can be. Because look at verse 7, sir, 
The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He's rationalizing now. He doesn't even give an answer. He, he actually, like, you and I would think, okay, so it was kind of insensitive on Jesus' side. But now if we put ourselves in his shoes, we're thinking to ourselves, that's an emphatic yes. I want to get well. Whatever well looks like, I'm trying to do it. But that's not what he says. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. Why, am, why I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And listen, I think this shows that this man, and maybe this is some of us, that this man was so such in a place that he didn't even think change was possible. He didn't think he could actually be well. Verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. Man, what I love about this text is that Jesus does all the heavy lifting. And what's so important to me for us to know, for us to take away, is that even though we may feel like change is impossible, There's a God who shows up to our situations and he sticks out his hand and he says, do you want to get well? Knowing that he's the one that has all the power, all the ability, all the grace, all the time to put in so that there could be deep transformation in your life. If we continue to read this story, uh, the man gets healed, uh, and it was, he was healed on the Sabbath, and that was a no-no. Picking up your mat, there were 39 categories that you shouldn't engage in, and this was one of them. Picking up your mat would have been him working. So the religious leaders approached him like, yo, who told you to pick up your mat? Like, you're breaking the tradition. You're breaking the law. And so he goes, like, I don't even know. Man, I want to say Jesus is willing to show up in your life in a a major way. And so much so, you might even miss who he is. But he picks up his mat, so he says, I don't know. Jesus finds him in the temple, because that would have been what he needed to do, go back to the temple to kind of be a part of society. Jesus sees him and tells him, listen, man, uh, you've gotten physical healing, but what could be more dangerous is you being separated from God. Don't use this now freedom that you have in this physical healing to go just live life the way you want to because you could fall away and be apart from God, and that's even more dangerous than you being in your condition for 38 years. The God of the universe approaches us, and I want us to see that in this text. Jesus approached him and said, do you want to get well? Here's why. Because there's a God who's committed to deep transformation in our lives. And I want you to hear God does all the heavy lifting. The beautiful thing about the Christian story is that we serve a God that doesn't wait for us to get it right to get to him because some of us are in a situation where we're hopeless. But what he says is, you know what? Hope is coming down to you. I'm going to put on my skin. 
I'm going to put on human nature. I'm going to die a criminal's death, and I'm going to come so hope can meet you right where you are. This story isn't just about a healing. It's about a deep transformation that God wants to see in this man's life and in ours. All right, cool. So where is the application? How do we make this apply to us? Well, here's the application for me. One, think about this. I want you to do this this week. How many of us have missed when Jesus comes to us and says, do you want to get well? How many of us have been rationalized or rationalizing or been so busy that we don't take time to hear that Jesus is actually asking us, do we want to get well? Oftentimes, we might have missed it. In the busyness of life, in the feeling of hopelessness, we might have missed it. Here's my last question. What if, what if we let the God of the universe into our lives so there could be real deep transformation? And I know it feels scary. I know it feels like, man, I don't know what I would do. How would I take this deep thing that I felt like could never be changed? How do I take this and give it to God? And I don't know if I have a prescribed answer for you, but I know that if and when you do it, there's a God that's committed to transformational change in your life. And even though it's scary, he's willing to walk alongside of you. The Bible says it like this in Revelations 3.20. It says, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And anyone who opens it, I will come and dine with them. I will be friends with them. I will invite them into a friendship, into a deep relationship. We've probably been resisting the deep transformational change that God wants to have in our life. We, like the invalid, probably have been trying to explain it away. But God, you can't see the situation. You don't know the wounds. You don't know how paralyzed I feel. Well, this week, I want you to hear this question. Do you want to get well? Because there's a God that's committed to your transformation. And he will extend his hand. He won't force it. But he will extend his hand and say, get up, pick up your mat and walk, because I'm the God who makes all things new. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for who you are and what you do. Change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.